All right, I got good news and bad news in my life. So what do you want to hear first? So you don't want to hear either of it. Okay. Amen. Let's go home. No. All right. So good news is the crowd at the gym is thinning out. So nobody's in my way anymore with the things I want to do. The bad news is the crowd at the gym is thinning out. And I feel bad that those that were, that were committed, you know, those first few weeks and really wanted to make a difference in their lives, fitness-wise, physically, um, that they're not there now. Um, so it's good and bad. But we've been talking about change. We've been talking about living transformed. And we are going to baptize some, some people here in a little bit. And we're excited about that who have made a change in their life by saying yes to Jesus. But we've been in this series called Living Transform. We've been focused on that word change. And the first week we talked about picking change or choosing change. We've got to make that choice for change in our lives, whether it's the absolute best foundational decision of, of choosing to follow Jesus and saying yes to him, which, which creates uh, all kinds of change in our life. Or maybe we already know Jesus and we've been walking with him and maybe there's something specific he's calling us to or there's something we feel really burdened about changing in our life. So we've got to make that choice. And then we talked about planning change. We talked about things don't just happen. We've got to plan for it. We've got to make allowances and we've got to, we've got to get ready to put these things into practice. And then last week, we talked about powering the change. Very powerful message, uh, pun intended. But Philippians 2.13 says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So as we, as we listen to how the Lord may be leading and guiding and directing us and we're making that change in our lives, we don't have to, to wring our hands and worry about how we're going to make it happen if we have the Holy Spirit in us because he will be the power we need to guide us through that. And so today we're going to continue in this series and I would say that Maybe, maybe making change isn't the greatest challenge, but it's protecting that change. It's keeping that change. A lot of people showed up at the gym on January 2nd, just let me tell you, and 3rd and 4th and 5th, and it really disrupted my routine, and I had to check my attitude with Christ because I came in, and they were in my spot, and don't they know that's my spot at 7 o'clock in the morning? Like many of you would say, this is my spot at 9.15, some Sunday we're going to make all of these change seats, I think. But, um, but sometimes, so making that change maybe isn't the most difficult thing. It's, it's protecting that change. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Protecting that change, keeping it, fighting for it, making it last, continuing to move forward. And as we talk about this today, I want to look at a powerful story in the word of Nehemiah. Now, some of you may be familiar with his story and some of you may not give you just a little bit of a backstory, and that's preacher language for I'm going to take a long time to talk about this. Um, just kidding, just kidding. But so the story of Nehemiah, so the people of God, Israel, they were, uh, they were sent into exile. They went to Babylon, and you can read about all this in the Old Testament. But during that time of exile, Nehemiah would have been born in Babylon, and and through his life then, he came to be in a position of being a cupbearer to the king. Now, a cupbearer to the king was a very important position because, as you can imagine, somebody at the position of a king, there might be threats to them and might have to be a little, little concerned about what people might want to do to them. So the cupbearer literally 
would bring the cup to the king, whatever he was going to drink, but he had to taste it first to make sure that nothing had been done to it. And so that obviously had to be a very trusted position by the king. There had to be a strong relationship there. If I'm going to I'm going to trust that somebody's testing out my food and my drink to make sure nobody's poisoning me. It has to be somebody I can trust. So there's that, so there's that very positive, strong relationship between these two. And while he's serving the king, while he's in this position, he hears word from Jerusalem that the wall of Jerusalem has been broken down, the gates have been burned with fire. There had been, there had been some exiles that had returned to Jerusalem and were living there now, but he gets this report of how Jerusalem has just been torn down. And of course, that grieves him tremendously. He's deeply grieved, his heart's broken, but at that very moment, what he has to do is continue to serve in the position he's in. Do you know that sometimes God might put a change on our heart, or he might put something heavy on our heart for us to do for him, but sometimes there might be a waiting period before it comes to fruition. So he's... He's got this now on his heart. He wants to help. He wants to, he wants to go to Jerusalem and do what he can. But his faithfulness has to keep him serving the king. And I want to jump to Nehemiah here. Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 12th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king as wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't, look, you don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, because sometimes speaking your heart to the king, that might not always end well. But he says, then I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Now, if you notice the very beginning of that passage, it says early the following spring. If you go back and you look into the details, it was probably late autumn that he first got the news about the city being torn down. So we're talking roughly six months or so, he's been wrestling with this. He had to make that choice. He had to choose change. He was gonna, he was gonna make, make something happen. He was gonna take action. And then he had that time to plan it. He had that time to be in prayer to God to help receive the power. And now it was time for him to take action. So the wall had been broken down approximately about 140, 141 years, which I don't know if you know this, but having a wall around a city torn down would be an absolute disgrace to the people. Proverbs 25, 28 actually says, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. So it compares those two things. And so not only is it unsafe because having, living in a city at that time without a wall around it would be unsafe, but, it, but it's just a disgrace. It's a reflection of the people, if you will. So the wall's been down for quite a while. Other people had tried with no success in rebuilding and restoring the wall. And so now here's Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, who's going to go and make a difference. And as he's doing this, as he's leading this charge, as you can imagine, there's some very stiff opposition that took place. And it actually got so bad 
at one point that, that Nehemiah had to tell the people, work with, with your tool in one hand and a sword in the other. We gotta continue to, to rebuild this wall. We gotta build it back up. We gotta get the gates restored. But there's opposition. There may be people coming at you. So shovel with one hand and have your ax in the other. Or pick with one hand or, and your sword in the other. Pick with one hand, have your sword in the other. Ready to fight against this opposition. And there were, there were really a big three that led the opposition that were coming against them. And one of the, one of the leaders of these three, his name was Tobiah. Um, and during this time, he was continually coming at them, trying to prevent the wall from being rebuilt. And you can imagine all that, all that might go on there. And you can read about it. I'm not gonna go into all the detail. But Nehemiah was able to get this task completed in 52 days. 52 days, they rebuilt the wall, rebuilt the gates. Obviously, the hand of God was on them as they were doing this. And then after the walls were rebuilt, they were excited, they were celebrating. They had a 24-day revival that happened. But here was the problem. The walls had been rebuilt, the gates had been restored, but the people had not. The people... The people had gone into rebellion against God, and so not only did the walls need to be fixed, but the people needed to be restored and renewed as well. So during this revival period, that's happening. God's doing a work. Um, They stopped worshiping other gods. God's word was brought out before them. It was read again, and they made a sure covenant with God, saying that we'll act instantly and obey God. We will not forsake the house of God. So meanwhile, so we have all this excitement, things are restored, Nehemiah goes back to his position of serving the king, picked up where he left off. Approximately 10 years later or so, he goes back to visit Jerusalem. And you can imagine, he's probably pretty excited, excited to go back and see how they've flourished, see how they've continued to serve God. Well, guess what? They're just like the people that were in the gym on January 2nd. They did not protect the change. They did not do the things that were necessary to keep things in order, to continue to pursue the Lord and continue to see progress. They did not protect their change. And in Nehemiah 13, verses four through six, it says, now before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. That was the guy that was against them, if you remember what I just said a few minutes ago. He was the one leading the charge to prevent them from rebuilding the walls, to prevent the gates from being restored because he knew if, if, Jerusalem, if Jerusalem started to flourish again, that was a threat to him and his allies. So the very person that had come against them, now Eliashib, one of the priests, had an alliance with him. He goes on to say, and he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all of this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. So Nehemiah is saying, while he's back serving the king, after all had been restored, he goes back, he's serving the king, and they actually bring in the one person, one of the, the three that had been coming against them, they actually give him a room in the house of God to set up camp. 
Talk about not protecting the change. I don't know about you, but I, I have a hard time understanding that. I have a hard time believing how they could let that happen. And then I look at my own life, and I think, how many times have I done the exact same thing? How many times have I tried to step out, follow God, do what he calls me to do, and I don't do the necessary things that I need to to stay at that spot, to keep moving forward, but I fall back into where I was at. So I want to continue to read on here, and I'm going to read kind of an extended, extended section of Scripture. But not only did they give Tobiah this, this room in the house of God, but I want to tell you some of the other things that were going on at this time. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them, for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Just see Nehemiah putting them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and of the Levites, Padeah, and next to them was Hanan the son of Zachor, the son of Madaniah, for they were considered faithful and their task was to distribute to their brethren. It goes on to say, remember me, O my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem." Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do this and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be open till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. I would have liked to meet Nehemiah because he sounds like a pretty intimidating guy. I mean, he goes to these guys and says, you do it again, Bible language, I will lay hands on you, our language, we're gonna have a problem, and he's gonna take care of it, and they obeyed him. They did what he said, so Nehemiah was no slouch by any means, but all this to say that obviously Israel had, they'd crept back into their rebellion. They had not protected the change that had happened. 
They were not honoring the Sabbath. They weren't, they weren't giving, they weren't tithing. And they weren't aligning themselves with people that had hearts for God, as we see by allowing Tobiah, their, one of their biggest adversaries, back into the house of God. So Nehemiah cleaned house. He took care of things and set things back in order. It's kind of like, you know, if I can liken this to, you know, they rebuilt the wall, everything was brand new. It's kind of like if you've got an old car and you kind of trash it, you know, you don't really care about it, and then you get a new car, and then after about three or four years, what happens? You start treating it the same way as you treated your old car. But that very thing had kind of, had kind of happened here. So Nehemiah, he cleans house. But what this tells us is that we have to, we have to watch ourselves so very carefully. You may know the, the expression to watch like a hawk, to watch something like a hawk. And I think that's very appropriate for us to think about as, as we watch ourselves as we walk in the change that God's called us to. I was thinking of like a, like a personal example, and if you have kids, think about how when they're little, you watch, you watch them like a hawk, right? Especially when they start to walk and they start to move. Well, at least your firstborn. You did it with your firstborn, okay? If you've got multiple kids, you know by the second, third, fourth, you're like, you expect the kids to watch the kids. But on your firstborn, your firstborn you're watching that child like a hawk, right? Because you don't know what you're doing as a parent, and all of a sudden they're moving. People tell you they're gonna stick their finger in a light socket and electrocute themselves. You know, you see all the sharp corners of the, your nice coffee table and all these beautiful things that you have in your house, which are now in their path of destruction. So you watch them like a hawk. You watch everything they do. You constantly have your eye on them to make sure they're not in danger and that they're not messing up your stuff, right? Well, that's that same attitude, it's that same um, intensity that we need to be willing to look at ourselves with as we're walking in the things that God's called us to walk in, as we're, as, we're, as we're applying the change to our lives that he wants us to so that we look more and more like him. You understand that he doesn't call us to change just so we have something to do, right? It's not just because he thinks we're bored and so he wants to bring something else, no. He calls us to change. He calls us to do something different because those are the things he's gonna to use to make us look more like him. And so when I think about it that way, well then, yeah, I really wanna protect that change. I really wanna, don't, don't wanna fall back to my old ways because I don't want somebody reading my story. Now, obviously, my story's not gonna be in the Bible, but I don't want somebody looking at my story from a distance saying, what in the world was Joel thinking? All this good happened in his life and then, and then he, he didn't protect that change. He allowed the influences back in. He stopped doing what he was doing in the beginning to help lead to it. I don't want anybody to look at me and think of that the way that we might read about the Israelites and think about them. So if we're not, if we're not actively watching ourselves, if we're not actively tracking where we're going, we're in that, we're in that danger zone that danger zone of falling back into where we were at. And so what I wanna talk about here today, wow, the clock goes really fast when you stand up here. So what, what, what I wanna hit today, some things for us to think about for us as we're walking through change in our lives that can help us to protect that change. And some of these things uh, Nehemiah might have done at that time as well. 
but there's a, there's a few points, there's actually five of them that I wanna hit, so if you're one of those, you can mark five spots down on your notepad right now. But the first thing that I wanna talk about is if we're gonna protect our change, we need to include good influencers in our lives. We need to have good influences around us. Obviously, that was one of the primary things that failed in the rebuilding of Jerusalem because Tobiah was allowed back into, not even just back into the community, but was given a house in the temple of God. In God's house, he was given space. The very evil that was coming at them was allowed back in their midst. And we've gotta be careful that we don't allow the world to come back in and corrupt us as we're trying to protect the change in our lives. And a huge part of that is who we surround ourselves with. I know pastors alluded to this over the years and, and I've, I have as well, but when you do youth ministry, one of the things that unfortunately you see a lot of the times is you can see the behavior of young people change and you know it's because they're hanging around with different people. It's, it's, it becomes very obvious and they may not even realize it at the time. But we have gotta be sure that we're doing life with people who have similar life values, who have similar goals, who are going the same direction and surround ourselves with those type of people. People that will give us positive peer pressure and not the opposite. Did you know that there is such a thing as positive peer pressure? Not only do we need to surround ourselves with it, we need to influence others as well. We need to be giving it out as well. But unfortunately, too often I have seen over the years, man, somebody who's, who struggles with something, maybe it's an addiction, um, maybe it's, you know, they, they're struggling and they, they're, they end up in jail or prison and they keep doing these things time and time again. And usually the thing that keeps pulling them back into that are relationships. They get clean, they get sober, um, they made a commitment to, to step away from a certain lifestyle. And then what happens? They let the very people that influence them in, into that in the beginning, they let them back into their lives. And it actually, it comes out of a natural craving for community. We were built to have community. We were built to do life with others. And unfortunately, sometimes we find that community in harmful places. But because we're built with, with, a, with a natural God-given desire to be accepted, to be loved, to have people around us, that it's easy to fall into that. So then we come out of, maybe we come out of a bad situation, but because of that need for community, we jump right back into it. And that's why the local church is so very important. That's why the body of Christ is so very important, to surround each other with loving, encouragement, support, accountability, all those things, so that we can keep moving forward and protect that change. You may need to become part of a NAS group. That's one of the things that we do around here to try and make this big place feel small so that we can get to know each other and we can understand people's struggles and we can come alongside as needed. But we've gotta have good influences around us to protect that change. The second thing is, we've gotta name what the change is. We've gotta name what the change is. Some of those people that came to the gym, they just said they wanted to be in better shape. And that's great, that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful desire. But what does that mean? Does that mean I lose a pound? Does that mean I get stronger? Does that, what does that mean? We've got to name specifically what that change is. I was told about, I've not read this book, but I was told about a book, um, it's called Switch, 
How to Change Things When Change is Hard. Uh, Chip and Dan Heath, I believe, wrote it. But there's a quote in there. They say, we're all loophole-exploiting lawyers. <laughs> yeah. Have, think about it. Okay, think about something you want to change in your life. Okay, I'm, I'm going to change how I eat. I'm going to eat better. Okay, I'm going to eat better. What does that mean? Well, that means I take one cookie out of the jar instead of six. Okay? My wife says that's true. She's, you know what I do? You know what I do? If I'm going to change and eat better, if there's cookies in the house, my, my loophole, I'm just going to eat them all and then get them out of the house. If I, if I eat them all right now, they won't be staring me in the face for the next week or whatever. So I'm just going to take care of it right now, okay? None of you have ever done anything like that, but that's me. Um, but, but we've got to name that change. We've got to be specific about it. Uh, Jack Welch, he was a CEO of GE from like uh, 81 to 2001, but he's credited with coming up what's called SMART goals. SMART being an acronym for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-based. I've also heard it said that if, if you can't measure a goal, it's probably not gonna happen. So when, I, when I'm talking about changing my life, when I'm, when I'm thinking about what God wants to do, I need to, I need to put that in a, in a specific attainable, realistic um, framework so that I can help protect that change. If my goal is to lose weight, well, maybe I need to be more specific and say how much I want to lose. And then maybe I need to get on the scale each day and see how that's going. Instead of just saying, I want to lose some weight and just think by sitting around that it's going to happen. No. We need to be specific. We need to be able to measure it. We need to be able to know if we're making progress. Some of the things that were not happening at that day, they, they quit honoring the Lord's day. So maybe, maybe for the people of Israel, they need to set aside the first day of the week for worship again, that Sabbath day. They weren't giving, they weren't tithing. So they needed to be specific about the amount of money that they were gonna give. They didn't have relationship, all of them didn't have relationship with God-loving people. You know, they invited the enemy into the camp, per se. So maybe they needed to be specific about who they were gonna hang out with. The Israelites, they had repented for sure for their previous rebellion, but maybe they didn't have quite the specific um, goals, the change in front of them to keep it, to protect it. Third thing we need to do is we need to inspect our environment. Make it easy to do right and hard to do wrong. In Nehemiah 13, it said, so it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath, okay? So they had problems with people bringing in goods and, and violating the Sabbath. So instead of there being the temptation of the gates being open, shut the gates. Shut the gates, shut the doors, and then we're not gonna have that issue. Some of us in our lives, we need to shut the gates. We've left too many doors and windows wide open for us to step right back into what we were doing before. It's a whole lot easier when I walk in the kitchen if the pantry door's shut and I don't see the amazing cookies that my wife and my daughter make. Throw them out. Eat them quick. No. <laughs> They're too good to throw out. Yeah. But you know, make those, take, a, take inventory of your environment. Close the gates. Get rid of the temptation. If you're struggling with, Dunkin', with eating donuts, don't go hang out at Dunkin'. You know? 
on a much more serious level. If you struggle with alcohol, don't go hang out at a bar. Whatever it is in your life, stand away, stay away from those temptations. I've been telling, told one of the young adults or maybe a few of them the other day, it's like sometimes we've got to have that 15 seconds of just crazy, insane courage to do something, to shut a gate, to close a door, to help me in my journey with Christ. I don't, I don't have to think about 30 years. I just got to think about 15 seconds to make a decision, to get rid of something, to tell somebody, to make myself accountable, whatever it is, so that I can protect that change. Inspect your environment. Purposely create accountability. Because guess what? Your willpower will be worn down. My wife's cookies are good enough that my willpower does not have a chance when they're staring me in the face. I just know it. I just know it. Willpower will be worn down so set boundaries. And then these last two can almost go hand in hand. And then we're gonna go to some baptisms here in a minute. But number four, we need to expect challenges. Now, I, I, I don't know about Nehemiah. I can't speak for him. But I wonder if he thought that once the walls were rebuilt, the gates were put back in place, the people repented before God, they had revival. Man, things were in a great place. And I wonder if he just thought, it's just gonna last. It's just gonna carry on like that. You know, he went back to being cupbearer. But I think sometimes we can think that. We can think, okay, I've stepped into this change that God's called me to because God's called me there. It's gotta be good, right? Well, yeah, it's gotta be good, but that doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. There could be challenges in front of you. I can remember when I, when I was called into ministry when I was called into ministry, there were challenges. And do you know, sometimes the challenges don't just come from Tobiah. It doesn't just come from your, from your evil adversary. Sometimes the challenges come from friendly fire, too. Sometimes the challenges come from people close to us. When I was called into ministry, I had people concerned for us financially. We were in a real good spot financially. A lot of you have heard my testimony. And, you know, our financial situation was going to change. And they didn't understand the trust and faith that we had in the Lord to help take care of us. But that was, that was friendly. That was loving fire. Yeah. I had people that loved me that actually were wondering if I was actually even called into ministry, if I was accurate about that. <laughs> friendly fire. Let alone the things that come from the enemy, right? So we need to expect challenges. And we, when we expect challenges, then we're not caught off guard then, then we're not likely to fall back into our old ways. When we know that things are gonna come at us. I think sometimes when we say yes to Jesus, sometimes, sometimes we, might, uh, we might be guilty of painting too flowery of a picture. Following Jesus is absolutely the best decision you can make, without a doubt. But there's, without a doubt. But there's nothing biblically that says it's going to be easy. It actually says what I'm saying right now. Be prepared for challenges. Be prepared for temptations. But it's because that we're following Jesus that we can stand up to those. It's because we're in a relationship with Jesus that we can walk through those and come out on the other side. So expect challenges. And then finally, you can expect some setbacks as well. Not just challenges along the way, but some setbacks. The devil, if we think about what happened with the Israelites, the devil capitalized on their covenant break the first time. 
He tempted them, he goaded them, he shamed them into coming right back to where they were. And he wants to do the same with us. When we mess up, he wants to tell us we failed. He wants to shame us. He wants to tell us that God doesn't want us anymore because we've fallen. You know, one, one danger in doing a message like this is inevitably somebody has, has attempted some change in their lives, has stepped out to follow what God has called them to, and it appears that it's failed. And now you wanna say, Joel, I hear what you're saying, but I don't believe it. I tried it once and it didn't work. Maybe I tried it twice and it didn't work. You know, there's, there's a lot of stats out there on a lot of, a lot of dependencies and, and things like that. Some experts say that um, in regards to nicotine, two to three who say they, two out of three people who say they want to quit never try. Nine out of 10 who try will fail. And most people try six times before they quit. You know that failure happens on your way to success? Do you think if, you're, if you drive a car on a long journey for thousands and thousands and thousands of miles that there's no chance for you to ever have a flat tire and have, it to, have to fix it and keep going? When you have a flat tire, do you just say, oh, well, I guess that's the end of my journey, and you just sit there on the side of the road till the end of your life? No. You fix it and you move on. And we have flat tires in life, right? We're trying to implement change. We're trying to follow God and we mess up. And there's a setback. Sometimes it's because of us. Sometimes it's because of somebody else. But we've got these setbacks. And it's very tempting. It's very tempting to go back to the old way, right? It might not have been as good, but it was easier. And we thought we can fall back. But with setbacks, you know, that the shame, the pain, the regret, all that stuff can come, come flooding back in. But God says, no. You've not screwed up too many times. You've not fallen too many times for me to continue to pull you along, to carry you along, to bring you to where I want you to be. You know what it says in Proverbs? What's it say in Proverbs? Proverbs 24 the first part of verse 16. It says, the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. Now, if you've tripped eight times, this still applies to you, okay? What it's saying is, you may fall down. You may mess up. You may, you may fail in what God's called you to once, twice, three times. But what's this verse say? We keep getting back up. We keep getting back up and we keep walking in what he's called us to. And you know why we're able to do that? Because of what Pastor preached last week, because of the power of God, because we've said yes to Jesus. Because when we try and do it on our own strength, yeah, we might keep failing. It might be a lost cause. But when we do it with his strength, it is never a lost cause. But we have to walk in that identity We've been talking a lot about change, but it starts with that identity in Christ. Craig Rochelle wrote a book, The Power to Change. 
It's good so far with where I'm at in it. I'm not all the way through it. But he says this. He says, to change what you do, you need to first change what you think of you. Let me read that again. It's not my quote, it's his. That's why it's good. To change, to change what you do, you need to first change what you think of you. If you don't see yourself, if, if you don't recognize yourself as a child of God, it's gonna be really hard to press through those things. But when I know my identity in Christ and I know who he is, then my behavior, then my life can follow what God, can follow God's path, his will, his way, what he wants me to do because I'm his child and in that there is all the strength and power to change that I am ever gonna need. And not just to change, but to protect the change. Say, protect the change. I want you guys repeating that to yourself all this week and on and on and on. Protect the change. Protect the change. And protective change means rely upon Jesus. Rely upon the Lord. He's the one that's gonna do that. He's the one that's gonna do that. We've got people, some people that are waiting to be baptized today. And the beauty is we're gonna celebrate people who have made that change, that have said yes to Jesus, and if the door gets unlocked, they'll come in, hopefully. But they've, they've made that change. They've said yes to Jesus, and so their identity now is a child of God. And so now, even though it may not be easy, they can walk, they can walk in the faith and the assurance that God is with them, and then no matter what he calls them to, no matter what they're stepping out to do, that he will be the power behind the change. He'll be the power behind them protecting it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to move into baptism here. And this may be something you may need to wrestle with. Some of you over these weeks, maybe God's been speaking to you about some things to change in your life. Maybe for others, that's yet to come. But can we just know today that if we're, gonna, if we're gonna hold on to that change, that good thing that he's called us to, that, that change in us that he wants to make, if we're gonna protect that, we've gotta surround ourselves with good influencers. We've gotta name that change. We've gotta be specific about it. We've gotta, what do we gotta do? Yeah. We've gotta inspect our environment. We've gotta set boundaries where needed. We've gotta shut some gates. We've gotta expect challenges. And we've gotta, Expect setbacks. And bottom line, we need to trust the Lord. We need to trust the Lord to guide us. Amen. Pastor Nathan.